Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We began this podcast series to talk with educators we know are thoughtful and effective to hear how they are coping with the unprecedented closure of their school buildings and how they're planning for the future. Today, we're talking with Jennifer Robbins, principal of Ladd Acres Elementary School in Hillsborough, Oregon. I met Ms. Robbins when she was working at W. Vern McKinney Elementary, also in Hillsboro. I had gone to McKinney to see the work of Ricardo LeBlanc Esparza, who was then principal. I had seen the improvement he had brought to Granger High School in the Yakima Valley of Washington, which I wrote about first in It's Being Done, published in 2007. And I had watched Mr. Esparza work in an elementary school in a small district outside of Denver. I wanted to see what progress he could make in his new school. Hillsboro is the fourth largest district in Oregon and is the home to highly paid tech workers and poorly paid migrant farm workers and everyone in between. About three quarters of McKinney's students qualified for free and reduced meals and about half were Hispanic. Back then the white students were doing okay academically, but few Hispanic students were meeting state standards. Almost as soon as he got to McKinney in 2012, Mr. Esparza was on the search for someone who could help him, and Jennifer Robbins fit the bill. She had been working in the central office, but was interested in eventually becoming a principal, and she came to McKinney to be, well, I never did figure out what her title was, but she was an instructional coach, a data coach, and did everything but have the title of assistant principal. Oh, and she brought a STEM curriculum to McKinney, first as part of a summer school and later incorporated fully into the curriculum so that McKinney was named a Title I STEM school. Mr. Esparza told me she worked hard, which was one of his highest accolades. When Mr. Esparza left McKinney in 2015, I kept in touch with Ms. Robbins, and I was happy to see that the new principal kept many of the systems that she and Esparza had instituted. I was even happier to see McKinney receive the Title I Distinguished Award at the National Title I Conference in 2016. That was a mark of how far the school had come. This year, Ms. Robbins finally realized her ambition to become a principal, and she's now principal of Ladd Acres. This is a heck of a year to be a new principal, and I wanted (laughs) to talk with her about how she is navigating all the difficulties involved in distance learning and what she is planning for next year. Welcome, Ms. Robbins. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be interviewed. Um, I've been listening to the podcast. It's, um, it's definitely a distinguished crowd. So, uh, We have talked to some very wonderful educators, I must say. Um, I hope you and your family are safe and healthy. Yes, yes, we're, we're doing quite well. I hope yours is as well. Yeah, well, I'm in a, I have to say, I'm in a coronavirus hotspot, whereas um, it looks like all the measures that Oregon took fairly early on have kind of kept kept the uh, infections to not as hot a spot. Yes, um, parts of the state are actually in phase one of reopening. I had the opportunity to actually travel outside the Portland metro area and go to a restaurant. That was a 
unique experience in this, <laughs> in this time. And yeah. I, I I don't know what you speak of. Yeah, <laughs> what yeah, is no. that? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's different though, for sure. Being served by a server with a mask and all of that. So, yeah, yeah. So you're now two months into distance learning. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you learned? Um, well, we've learned a lot about communication systems um, and we've learned a lot about our families and their support networks and their uh, extended support networks. We've, um, you know, definitely tried to and reach out to as many people who can support their the students during this time. It's uh, it's a challenge though. But we're we're talking to aunties and uncles and cousins and older sisters and daycare providers and because uh, school is is gone into all these different places. So um, and you know I think. Do that, we're finding where the gaps are in our communication systems. Well, talk a little bit more about your communication systems because uh, the the superintendent in Mobile said that was his biggest challenge was communicating with everybody. So, and I'm still regretting that I didn't ask him how he solved that problem. Um, but how did you solve for that problem? Um, I think we're continuing to solve for that problem. Um, I think uh, an example of that was as we were distributing comb books, I handed it to a parent or put it on the table so she could pick it up so we didn't actually get within six feet of each other. Um, And then I looked at her and I'm like, do you know how to work it? Do you know like what to do with it? And she paused and said, well, no. And so then it occurred to me that tech skills and um, we, you know, keep pushing things out on a digital platform saying, hey, go to this website, it'll walk you through the tutorials, but we're missing the step in between. Like, how do you even open it up and log in and, you know, when your child's a first grader or a kindergartner and, and we hadn't trained those students to do that. So they weren't navigating that. I mean, we use social media and we use newsletters. I mean, at this point, I think all of my parents have access to an email address, but how regularly they check it and how I have uh, 29 different languages spoken at my school and, um, you know, we get Spanish translation, but, you know, working with Tagali or Korean and trying to find other avenues to make sure our parents can all understand what's coming to them is a challenge. So we're working on it, but uh, yeah, I think there's those pieces too. As we've done some Google Classroom and Seesaw Classroom setups, you know, I think that's probably a primary form of communication, but we also still have students who are receiving paper packets because that's what works for their family. So we, uh, Google Voice was another tool we employed in this process, um, and that gave our teachers an outward-facing phone number so they weren't having to use a personal device and try to mask their phone number. It also allowed us to text families, which is something I think a lot more people use than, say, email. But we're, you know, we're still working. I'm still trying to can communicate with all families. Some of them have, have kind of just hunkered down for a little while. So, so when you when you say you get packets to some students, how do you get them? Do you mail them? Do you deliver them? Um, we either they pick them up at the school or we deliver them. And that's one of the the jobs today is to set up you know the delivery system. Um, we have some staff members. I've gone out and delivered them as well. And how are you communicating with your staff members? Um, We do, I do a weekly staff meeting um, via Google Meets. Um, 
I don't know that my staff loves me that I do it at 7.30 in the morning on Mondays, but it's uh, one block of time I know that we all have free. Um, and, uh, you know, my usual weekly emails. Um, but I also, when we started this, I set up a Google Classroom myself for the staff so that I could be a learner just like they are. Because for some of them, setting up Google Classrooms was completely brand new. They wasn't part of their regular classroom routine and structures. So I knew that that was a huge learning curve for them. And I, although I had experience using it, um, I hadn't quite used it on a daily basis like that we were gonna ask them to do. So I wanted to make sure that I was struggling with some of those same organizational and technology components that they were um, so that I could help troubleshoot that as we went through this process. What what are the most significant barriers you've faced? Um, we still have parents that are working, and so they are their children are, are you know either with extended family or at a daycare provider, and some of our daycare providers don't want a device coming, um, don't you know want to do that, and so if a parent's commuting an hour each way, and then they don't have the bandwidth to sit down and do be a first grade teacher after a day like that. Um, and some of them do try to catch up over the weekend. Um, but I think that's, I think the greatest barrier is trying to adapt our, this distance learning to every possible learning environment that our students are living in and make it meaningful. I think that's probably um, the greatest challenge. So are, are teachers able to, you know, actually teach or are they just trying to tread water um, and keep kids from falling behind? What, like, how, how are you thinking about that? Um, yeah, I think um, my mantra when we set this up, um, after we established some kind of connection, you know, make sure you knew how you were connected to your kids, was to keep it simple and predictable. So follow us, like a kind of a, just a routine and structure, same, similar, you know, in terms of you always set up systems and routines in your classroom. This was just going to look a little differently. Um, yeah, I mean, they will hold um, Zoom or Google Meet sessions where they um, will review a concept that may have been pushed out via video and then they answer questions or they have learned how to create whiteboard projections and go through problems together um, with students. They'll um, have their chart. I bought a few whiteboards to go home to, house, you know, different teachers' households. And they're on the whiteboard, you know, walking the kids through or creating an anchor chart with the students. Um, some of it's synchronous and some of it's asynchronous. Uh, we get a fair amount of turnout for just the classroom meetings. So that social connection um, that our students need. They, Some students, that's primarily their, their focus um, or what they do attend. Is, is those Google Meets, so that social-emotional learning. Um, but yeah, they've, you know, they, they're moving along. Um, you know, they collect writing samples and um, they do a lot of small group sessions. Um, our student, our, uh, student services is still attempting to even do some of their dyslexia small group support via Google Meets. So it's a range, it's a range, but you know, we're getting there. <laughs> So I know you are constantly trying to figure out new ways to do things. In fact, your Twitter handle is uh, how how 
how do you say it? It's something along the lines of, I believe innovation is the way to close the opportunity gap. Yeah. You are continually trying to figure out better ways to do things. So mm-hmm. like what would be better if you have to go through the fall with remote learning? Right. Um, so just this week, I pushed out a survey to my teachers in terms of kind of capturing some information in terms of who's showing up to class, so to speak, and um, what types of lessons are they most regularly engaging in um, to try to gather some quantitative data about this great experiment. And then there's some definitely more anecdotal information. Um, And then my going through their Google Classrooms, I'm planning on going through like the the grade book, just in terms of trying to capture what is being turned in on a regular basis. Um, You know, are are we doing better in math lessons or reading or what type of lessons are keeping the kids engaged in all of this? Because there is a possibility we could be coming back um, hybrid in the fall. And so what, what types of lessons, what things are really working? Um, right now I have some anecdotal stories in terms of, you know, my sixth grade math teacher, he does five minute video lesson, small set of problems, and he's getting pretty, you know, in his words, a better return than he was getting brick and mortar from his kids. Um, we do have some kids for whom this format is working better. Um, you know, particularly my sixth graders, because I think there's not as many social pressures going on um, in terms of what's going on. You know, they don't have to worry about what other people are saying and doing during class. You know, they can just focus on the learning. So, you know, trying to figure out for how many students is that true, you know, um, and if, if these things are working, how do we replicate them throughout the school? And so what is it about that format that's working for kids. So you're doing that within your school. Are you doing that also within Hillsborough? I mean, is Hillsborough doing that as a whole or is that just a school? Um, we have been reaching out to parents to find out what's working or not working for them. We've sent out surveys to parents. Um, I think we did that early on and um, hopefully we'll do something again. Um, as we finish the year. You mean the Um, district has? Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah. they shared a survey for us to push out to parents. I'm uh, still wrapping my brain around um, what this looks like. We are tracking um, more like engagement data. Um, So just how often are kids showing up in in their distance learning? That information I believe will be, you know, something that we'll capture as a district to figure out. I know they're struggling more at the secondary level because the grades went pass, no pass, you know, students are like, well, I don't know. <laughs> you know? Um, so how do we keep them motivated when we turn the corner in the fall? It'll be interesting. So are you planning on summer school or going straight to the fall? Um, they are planning on doing our migrant ed summer program. Um, and they are rolling out plans. You know, we just wait for the governor to issue guidance and then go through our department of ed to see exactly what that looks like. I mean, my school site doesn't do a summer program, but in the, the district led ones and they're working on a format of some sort to be able to do that. 
I can't help but think that you were so proud and so invested in the STEM stuff, which requires in-person building. You, uh, I think uh, there was one summer where your students built two rowboats. <laughs> was that right? Do I remember uh, yeah. that correctly? Well, they actually built it during the school year. Oh, um, very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that was a that was a fun project. Um, yeah, that just can't be done by distance learning. That's something in person. Yes, I mean, obviously, uh, those hands-on pieces, unless you're dropping off kits of some sort and things like that. I mean, yeah, I don't know what McKinney's summer program will look like this summer. Um, last summer um, was the first summer I didn't wasn't involved in it because I took this position, um, but they partnered with the Boys and Girls Club and hosted it on site there um, and was pretty successful doing that. So I don't, you know, we don't know if those types of facilities will even be open this summer, which will be really a great hardship for, for the kids if they don't have access to those resources over the summer. So talk about being a new principal. I mean, this is really a heck of a way to start a principalship. Um, yeah, as I told my staff when we were like prepping Chromebooks to send out, I'm like, well, this is the first point in the year where everything's new for you too. It's, I'm not the only person where it's, you know, because all year long it's been like, well, that's new to me. Um, let's figure that one out. Um, I mean, there are some things from being an instructional coach that are familiar, but you know, there were definitely a lot of new, um, and it was a whole new staff and building to me. This wasn't a site I had ever done um, significant work at as a TOSA or anything. So um, yeah, you just kind of, I don't know, part of it, it is, you know, everything's new. So you just take it and you go. Um, it's um, kind of a bonding experience to go through this with your staff, right? You know, um, and and even with my fellow administrators, because you know we had to lean on each other in, in ways that maybe we wouldn't have um, if we just stayed in traditional brick and mortar. Um, we have a lot of these kind of virtual meetings. Um, for a while there, it was daily because <laughs> new information would come in, and we would meet with our supervisor like this and and ask questions and process things together. Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful to have, you know, that kind of support and, you know, colleagues to connect with and go, okay, how are you, you know, getting all of the student supplies out the door, you know, the contents of their desk and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think the hardest challenge is um, I'm not a known entity to my families um, as far as you know, um, if you've been an administrator for in a community and have those connections with the families, they know they can come to you and say, this is what's going on with me and this is what I need help with. Um, so that's always my greatest fear is just because they don't know me as well, they're not um, connecting them, relying on the connections they have with, say, my counselor or their classroom teachers to really make sure that um, we're reaching all of the families who may need more help than, than we know. So when I talked to Jenny Black in Kansas and Superintendent Threadgill in uh, Mobile, they both said, we have, you know, I have plan A, plan B, and plan C for the fall. And I, I thought, well, do you have plan A, plan B, plan C? Or like, what are you thinking for the fall? It, it seems yeah. almost in, I mean, you have to come up with a plan 
Mm-hmm. But you don't know if you can have all your students in the, in the building at the same time or only some of them. If right. only some of them, how are you going to make that decision? Um, yeah, as a, um, in our last uh, K-12 meeting, we were talking about, you know, how does our, how do our priorities and our, um, as a district, you know, when you really truly look at your um, equity plan, I mean, this is a great, it doesn't get tested more than when you put it up against a crisis, right? So who are we going to take care of and how are we going to take care of them? And and so we are currently, we were asked to give um, on what that looks like and how do, how do we make those priorities as we start to evaluate all the different possible plans, you know, a traditional brick and mortar return, a hybrid model, or continuing to be offsite. I mean, do we prioritize making sure our most vulnerable students um, attend, if we are hybrid, do they attend more brick and mortar days than say other students? Uh, Making sure that we're very flexible with families. We have some, we know we have some families who are gonna be afraid to return if the governor releases us to return. Um, they, because they have, you know, high risk people in their home. Um, and so, you know, do you bring in our K one twos and spread them out across all schools in the district? You know, because I can tell you from my engagement data, those are, you know, those are our students who it's hardest to stay connected with. Um, and then, but then again, they're struggling at the secondary level to keep, you know, those students in, engaged as well. So, um, our students with IEPs and 504s, our students for whom English is a second language, you know, like, can we bring them in more brick and mortar? Um, so those are all the different variations that we're looking at. Um, we're also headed into a massive budget cut. So when you layer that on top of trying to figure out what all your different plans are, that, that adds another layer as well. Pretty significant one. <laughs> so. Well, that. That's really helpful, though, in, in, in how you might start thinking about who comes in. I mean, you're going to have data on who's more engaged and who's right. less engaged. You bring yeah. the kids in who are less engaged because they need the, the, in, the social interaction, the personal interaction. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they need, um, and it, what I am planning on doing is making sure however we come back, um, is to do more parent night or parent connections. And really, I mean, I can envision like the projection of the Google classroom up on the screen and being like, okay, I'm going to walk you through what it looks like to be a student. I mean, you guys did a great crash course in it this spring, but I really want you to be able to answer your questions and be like, this is what it means to share a doc. This is what it means to turn it in and, and creating some more, um, consistency, from classroom to classroom, you know, we kind of made it up as we went. And I um, did a lot of professional development and, and coaching um, with my staff to help lay out consistent formats for students, keeping it simple and predictable. But I, our parents are have a heavy, you know, lift in terms of navigating what that looks like and making sure their kids are actually doing what they they say they're doing and, you know, or that understand it. I mean, I'm living it too, so. Yeah. Um, I imagine you have quite a number of essential workers um, who are parents in terms mm-hmm. of, in terms of food workers. They're they're picking crops, right? Um, Some of yeah, them are, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, I mean, we have 
parents who work in other essential services, emergency responders or um, healthcare, or Fred Meyer, you know, grocery stores, um, you know. So that that was one of my questions. Are is that how districts might triage kids? Like the kids of essential workers get birth dibs on brick and mortar. I don't know. I, I don't know how no. you think about that. We did provide childcare for essential workers um, at some of our high schools where we have child development centers. Um, that was part of the actually the governor's um, initial order was that um, K twelve would provide childcare. Um, yeah, I mean, because then the teachers also were, you know, we have to weigh the, like, how do teachers teach when they have young children and need to put them in child care, right? Um, they've been managing that in their homes right now, um, to the best of their ability. And, um, and then we have, um, staff members who may not feel safe coming back. Um, actually, if they have you know, diabetes or if they have yeah. other kind of, right. Our bus drivers, you know, they're they're very much on the front lines and there's, you know, they, you know, need to feel safe transporting students and how to use social distance on a bus with, uh, you know, kindergartners, right? You know, like they're, uh, they're still learning where to be and how to be there, but they're going to want to sit next to their friend. And poke so, them. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there's all of those pieces to consider when we look at these. Is there anything good that is, that can come out of this? Do you think? Um, yes, most definitely. I think teachers have learned a whole nother set of skills. Um, I've started those conversations. We've talked about like the things that they've learned in terms of um, student choice um, and how they learn and how they show what they're learning. Um, and, and they've, like their ed tech skills obviously have risen to a whole other level. Um, and um, I, for one, have learned a lot more about my community, um, specifically the Loud Acres community versus, you know, the wider Hillsboro community um, and how we interact and what we need from each other. I think as a, as a nation, we have just an, a huge wealth of information that we can be tapping into as far as how can you change the K-12 education system. I mean, and because it's in the past when you would have Hattie or someone review information, it was regional, you know, maybe a state. Um, in some cases, he has some, you know, European countries that have a whole system that he could evaluate. But um, this is this is international, you know, like we have the opportunity and I hope we don't waste it. Um, to learn so much about how kids learn and what our education system needs um, that I hope that's, you know, why I'm excited when I get to listen to your podcast and hear how other people, because there are so many consistencies with how we're going through this, that we could capitalize on all that information and figure out a way to do this better. Um, I mean, I will do my best to make sure that happens here in the, in my locus of control. <laughs> Um, as far as taking what we've learned about which lessons and um, things, you know, we can move forward with. Um, because I think this is a lot of this style of learning is what I've been coaching teachers to do for a very long time and just haven't really gotten them to embrace it. And now they've had to try it and they've had to see how much more independent our students can be. And then with some 
support and training, what what more they could do. You know, it's it's quite amazing that, you know, our seven, eight, and nine-year-olds navigate this system and turn in things and create their own videos um, explaining their learning. And, you know, but we've also learned how much we've controlled their learning and haven't uh, released because once we they were in this environment, I think a lot of teachers realized how much they were controlling what went on and how little the students had control because they could now the students have full control for better or worse right right right, right. yeah but but I'm curious, like, do you have a, an example of exactly what you're thinking about? Like, do you have an example of a student who has, like, just taken the reins and done something that you didn't expect or the teacher didn't expect? Um, so, well, we have, you know, one kindergartner that always signs off his little videos with, you know, this is Bodhi over and out, um, <laughs> which just warms her heart every day. Um, I've seen engagement, like I send out weekly challenges to, um, my students and, you know, I had a sixth grade boy who every time I would, you know, swing through his, um, math classroom was just like, I don't get this. I'm not going to do it. And, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, he's responding to my challenge of send me a, a Google site of what makes you happy. And he posts that. Um, for that connection. So my kid that just very much wanted to appear disconnected and he shows up and he does every single math lesson and he'll show up at office hours and ask his teacher questions when I could not get him to, you know, stop his teacher in class and be like, can you tell me I don't understand, which was quite amazing um, to see. And I've had teachers say that in this environment, um, they'll do the, you know, their little classroom meeting and, and that quiet, shy kid will stay on a little longer to share like their stuffed animal or something that's going on with them. And, and she, you know, like I would have never been able to have that conversation in a classroom of 28 students. Um, so, you know, there, there are definitely some connections that have happened um, that would not have been possible without this. And, or where students are creating small videos about something that matters to them and their teachers are getting to watch those. And we did a whole, our fifth grade science fair via Screencastifies. So, um, and you know, the teacher's like, that is one tool that I will bring forward because it gives me a chance to collect student voices in a way I can't do in a, in a brick and mortar classroom. Thank you. The, those are great examples and I really appreciate your taking the time. Um, we at EdTrust hope you and your family and everyone in Hillsborough stay safe and healthy. Um, I'm going to introduce my colleague from EdTrust, Tangie Reed Marshall. Tangie is EdTrust's Director of Practice. Tangie, what did you think about what Ms. Robbins just said about, you know, actually we could do better things in the future if we actually learn from this experience, how kids learn, how they engage, how they connect. I think um, obviously that's true. And I one of the things that Jennifer talked about, which I found super intriguing because it's part of some big questions I myself have had, is this notion of there's been this instructional power shift, right? So she talked about, you know, teachers were holding on to the control of kids learning. 
And now they have been forced to let go of that because they're not physically in that space. And so the instructional power that teachers hold on to um, for lots of reasons, right? Not all nefarious, you know, but certainly something that we have to question. They've been protecting that instructional that instructional authority that they have. And now they have no choice but to give it to kids because they're just not there. And so we have an opportunity to learn from the best of what's happening. We definitely know students are struggling, right? There are some students who are really having a difficult time with this operationally, and we have to make sure every barrier is removed so students who who need access can get access and we can't you know we can't keep barriers in place to student learning but we have to also take into account there are students for whom this kind of learning does work and i don't know if that voice is being heard enough you know we heard her say that kindergartner says you know this is so and so over and out right this is another little kid at the end they stick around for a little bit the, the young the boy who in 6th grade is now willing to ask the question go to office hours make sure he understands so there was something in the face to face environment that was a barrier to him learning that's now been removed just because he's not physically there anymore right and so i think those are the kinds of questions um, Jennifer said they're going to be doing surveys to figure out, you know, how to move forward, who with whom and how. And I, I hope um, that those surveys include getting student voice, right? Asking students what they want, asking students what they need, what's been best for them. Um, and so that the adults who have the authority to make decisions, make them with students in mind, not just logistics in mind. Right. Because I think it would be easy. None of this is easy. Right. Uh, just uh, to, to, <laughs> to, to not, <laughs> I don't want to uh, say anything is easy, but it would be intellectually sort of neat and easy Sim- yeah, and clean. Simple, it's clean, simple, clean yeah. to mm-hmm. say, well, we'll bring in all the kindergartners right. rather than to say, well, kindergartners, maybe that's a different issue, but we'll bring in all the second graders rather than say, you know what? So-and-so, um, her parents are at home. Uh, she's doing really well online. Let's leave her at home and bring her in just to kind of socialize sometimes and, mm-hmm. and, and right. make sure she knows her teacher and so forth. But we're not going to bring her in because we can't have all the kids in the school. Right. So how are we going to differentiate? That's right. And how are we going to be able to um, really see each individual kid and their family and what their situation is rather than just say, well, all the second graders. Right. You know, this was a blanket statements about, you know, bring them all back and make sure that they're all sitting in rows facing forward and they're all six feet apart and, you know, doing this sort of industrialization of schooling in a, in a space to, you know, bring back something you know, so everybody can get back into school. And you're right, we, we need to take into account the individualized ways in which families are being impacted by this and let that influence the decisions we make amidst stark budget constraints and, and you know, teacher, you know, retraction. And, you know, we have to take the human capital in this and not settle for technical fixes 
We've got to get to this place where we are adaptive so that the technical fixes match, right? And it's not just a sort of retrofitting of technical fixes. But I do, I, I do want to just say we maybe shouldn't just say, oh, and there are going to be big cuts to school budgets. Right. Like maybe fight that. Maybe we don't. That's true. Maybe we don't. Because, <laughs> Unfortunately, we've just been reading about it so much. And you know, those I know, that but keep coming up and hopefully they won't. Right. Hopefully they realize that this is not the way to address this very difficult time in which we're facing that you can't do what happened in 2008 and balance all this on the backs of people who can't afford that done that way. You know, perhaps they will take a more, a broader uh, brush and, and think more critically about the impacts of saying, well, this is what's on the horizon and we have, it's inevitable. We can't help but do this. We can help but do it. There are we other can. ways, there are other ways to do this. There are other ways to do it. And if we just accepted and I, I suspect you share this with me, though we've never talked about it. The most important thing we do is educate the next generation. Oh, there's a thing. More, it's more important than <laughs> I, anything. I, I, I drive on roads, you know, right. but it's more important than roads. It's, it's more, more right because well, it's maybe not more important than bridges because they fall down and then you. Then, then, then what? <laughs> we don't want that. But you're right. I mean, but but it's it's a, it's just a constant reminder of our value system. We speak with a certain type of language, and then our actions tell you exactly what our value system is. And if our value system really is educating every single child, then the inequities that are just exacerbating would cease to exist. Right. Like we, like we would do what we needed to do to ensure that these inequities that we keep hearing about that have been here for centuries would stop. But we have a certain value system. And so we know that school budgets will be cut. But be, I, I just I didn't know. want that to <laughs> I, know. I just didn't want that to pass without saying, well, maybe oh. maybe they don't have to cut. I hope maybe, they don't maybe have we to could cut. do something different. We can do something different. This is about a willingness to do something different. It's never about a can or cannot. It's always about whether the people who make the decisions are willing to make a different decision so that their words, so that their actions align with their words. Right. Like there are countries that can't that don't have that choice. Exactly. And we, we are do. The, we are the wealthiest nation on earth. Oh, there's a thing. We we can make that choice. We can make to educate that choice. every child. We can equally, right? Educate every child to the standard that we all say we want. Hmm. Okay. Well, now that we've, you know, kind on of gone thing, lost in the right. clouds on that one. <laughs> that's right. Okay. We should stop. <laughs> I think that wraps up this episode of EdTrust Podcast, Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. In all these conversations, I've been struck by the fact that we are talking with leaders who, they don't pretend to have all the answers, but they find ways around barriers and empower other leaders within their schools and districts to find solutions to problems. Every time I hear such smart, dedicated people talk about their work, it gives me hope for the field of education and for our nation. In all, we've had more than 5,000 downloads of the Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times podcast, so I'm hoping that others are finding these conversations helpful. 
If you think this is a valuable podcast, I hope you'll recommend it to your friends and networks. Please leave a review wherever you get this podcast. That will help steer people in our direction. If you want to be in touch, you can email extraordinarydistricts at edtrust.org or tweet at edtrust or me at Karen Chenoweth. I'll spell it K-A-R-I-N-C-H-E-N-O-W-E-T-H or Tangie at Remarsh76. Mike Patillo records and edits this podcast through the magic of Zoom from Tonal Park. I want to thank everyone at EdTrust who are supporting this podcast in particular, Robin Harris, Jack Fleming, and Keith Curry. And I thank the Wallace Foundation for providing financial support. Thanks, and see you next time.